is taking some extra time, it seems. to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best tech leaders um, in the world to share with you uh, the best scaling up lessons about how to scale a SaaS company from 1 million to 100 million uh, ARR in, in revenues. Uh, I have the pleasure of having a very special guest uh, today. Uh, if I'm not wrong, free time uh, founder, uh, really a serial entrepreneur, which is Anthony Rose, the founder and CEO at Seed Legals. Uh, Anthony, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. So, yeah, let's let's get to know more about yourself and how did you end starting with being the the man behind or the mind behind BBC iPlayer, and then you went to uh, found another three companies and now with with Seed Legals. So let us know a little bit how you arrived to Seed Legals and why did you start Seed Legals? Sure. So uh, my journey starts many, many years ago with, uh, I used to have my own company doing electronics hardware, I guess in the days before they were called startups, they were just called companies. And I learned mm -hmm. that as a founder, you know, before uh, the, really the days of start it, startup investment, you had to get to cash flow positive and make money. Otherwise you didn't have a business. Um, and then uh, the company, uh, I, I got into 3D graphics. That morphed into joining Kazar, the music file sharing company. Uh, I was living in Australia at the time. One day I got a call from the BBC saying, Ahem, we're looking for someone with media um, product experience to head up BBC iPlayer. I said, the BBC, where are the stock options? But I was <laughs> persuaded. So I flew over to uh, London, headed up iPlayer after... Um, I, I was kind of done there. It was time to get back to startup life and I built a startup, sold it, built a startup, sold it, got tired of paying lawyers fees, uh, invested in a few um, small startups myself and then met my business partner, Laurent Lafie, uh, quite a well-known ex-VC and serial angel investor. And he was saying that from the investor perspective, he was tired of paying lawyers, um, the mistakes they that humans make on complicated cap tables and the time that everything takes for people to argue by word document with red line track changes, technology has to change this. So we got together, we met about three years ago now, spent about six months developing a product, uh, launched, we're now about 35 people, we're based in Hoven in London, we think about one in 12 early stage UK investments are now done on seed legals growing very nicely month on month. Uh, we've closed our own Series A round with uh, Index Ventures leading on seed legals, of course. Um, and I guess one of the really interesting things is that, you know, transfer-wise promises boardless uh, banking. Imagine boardless legals. Imagine you can see your deal terms across different countries in the same interface, in the same synergized way, but make an investment in a different country or as the founder in a country, be able to get investors in different areas more easily investing in you. So that's going to be 
for another podcast later, but that's in our future. So, so yes, that's a bit about seed legals and a bit, oh, a bit about seed legals. So if you're a, today a UK startup, this is the fastest way, most efficient way to do your next funding round, get investment ready, do your SEIS and EIS and so on. So instead of paying lots of money to a law firm, head over to Seed Legals. It's a 24-7 platform that comes with our help. And what I love is how technology changes things in both the expected and the unexpected way. So when we started Seed Legals, we thought people were after legals. What I, reckon, what I recognized very quickly, people, nobody cares about the legals or not very much. What they want is a solution to their problem. So what we were able to do is take things that people were looking to do, productize them, use data over hundreds of rounds to work out what people really want to do, and then package those up to be much more efficient. And then we could use that to get to the next step. So what I particularly love is that people used to do funding rounds every 12 to 18 months. Thanks to technology, we've transformed that into what we call continuous funding. And we've seen more investments now closed at 1 a.m., then at 10 a.m. So founders have many things to do in their day, but instead of waiting on a call to talk to a lawyer, on a Sunday night, you can buy some instant investments and close the round at 1 a.m. It's fantastic. And so the goal is to be the operating system of your company to do a range of things that, you know, lawyers and so on used to do before. Although for me, it's not about disrupting lawyers. It's about just building a great set of solutions to the problems our customers have. That's, that's an amazing vision and uh, already also an amazing track record. So one in each 12 investments in, in the UK uh, being made uh, with seed legals. It's really uh, impressive. And I, I like also the recurring uh, side of it in the way that you can go for multiple rounds using um, the seed legals platform. Um, so usually in the show, we go through what we call the 10 Rockefeller habits, which are very simple habits that one of the most successful uh, businessmen in the history of the United States has applied to his own uh, business to create uh, an empire. They are super, super simple. And that's why it's also very easy to, to not go through them and, and to not apply them. So and starting with, with the number one, uh, which I really believe it's critical to, to scale, which is the executive team is healthy um, and aligned. And how, how, looks, how looks like your founding team? And I think you already described it, uh, that you have someone who also knows a lot about the core business. And maybe something more relevant to you, how do you plan to build your leadership team 1.0? So I, I imagine that's at this stage, you are getting to the stage where you need to go from the founding team to, to the first version of your leadership team. Fabulous points. And I think two key parts for me. The first one is I talk to many, many startups really on a daily basis. And it seems to me there are three roles that you need. It doesn't mean three people, but three distinct roles. Role number one is um, the domain expert. So maybe that's the doctor interested in dialysis or they, you know, it's a delivery guy who's trying to make deliveries more efficient or something. So somebody knows the audience and is often, you know, the person passionate about 
the, the product. The second role is the Mr. or Mrs. Money, the person who's going to make sure the business is funded, make sure the business is profitable. And that's probably more like a COO role. And the third role is uh, the person who's going to build and ship it, usually aligns more with the CTO type of role. And so I think in order to have a successful business, you need the three roles satisfied. And then the question is, if you look within yourself as a founder, which one or more of these are you? And I think it's quite rare that you're all three of them. Um, but what's interesting is if you can analyze yourself and recognize the ones that you are not, then you want to surround yourself with people who complement your skills. So for example, I'm a tech product guy. It turns out that in the space, by being a bit of a serial entrepreneur, I'm somewhat familiar with funding rounds. My business partner, he's really more of the domain expert. So in our relationship, he's the domain guy, I'm more of the product shipping guy, and between us together, we both more or less covered the funding piece, um, although I probably defer a bit more to him. So what I quite like, um, secondly, is the yin and yang. So um, between us, we are probably 90% aligned on things, and about 10% of the time, we look at it from different angles. And there, that yin and yang, I think, is fascinating in helping you decide what to do next, because if you only talk to yourself, it's an echo chamber. So for example, when you have a growing business, there are endless of numbers of things you should do. Should we launch in America? Should we have products in adjacent areas? Should we have seed legals for profity businesses? Should we change our pricing? You know, there, so what do you decide? And I think what's interesting is when you can have a business partner to brainstorm these things. And to me, one of the key differences between a founder and an employee is the founder, the weight of their world of the world is on their shoulders. They need to make the business a success. You know, I don't have kids, but I would imagine if you had kids, you can't after a year or two go, I'm bored with the kids, can I give them back? It's not an option. You've gotten people away from their previous jobs. They were working so you can to deliver. And so in a world where nobody can tell you what the answer is, you know, should we launch in the US? Well, it could either be a huge opportunity or we'll go bust by wasting millions of dollars on a Silicon Valley, you know, office. Um, Absolutely. It, there's no one you can call and see what to do. So there it's nice to have people with, you know, opposite views and you can brainstorm what it is. Um, which you can only do as the founders, of course, if you have an inclusive team, you can share with the team, but the team always are paid a salary, they have an option to disappear and go off and join Google if they don't like the outcome. Um, so, so, so I think the, so the part one of the question is between my business partner and myself, I very much like the um, obviously greatly sufficiently aligned so you can execute the vision, but actually see differently on a range of things that doesn't put you in your own echo chamber. The second thing is the, um, the executive team. Right. And having thought about the roles that you fill, I think it's important to know when you aren't filling one and how to have someone else fill that. And I think the first time the founders 
have somebody that they hire who takes over an area of their responsibility, it feels a bit like you slicing off some part of your body, you know, you, you right. I, I, I could, is this part one of firing myself or having someone else? <laughs> Maybe I'll wake up one day and I'll have nothing to do in the business anymore. So, I mean, you know, it said it when you reach 20 or 30 people, you now need to put other management in place. And I, for myself, um, you know, I, I love spending time with the team. It's the most important thing, but as there are more and more team members and more and more incomings, you find yourself spread a little thinner. And so actually recently we hired a CCO and a CMO um, to, and in fact, I've been able to hand over um, quite a lot to somebody else. And it's at once it feels like uh, maybe I need to be doing this myself. But on the other hand, it was just crazy. You just can't sustain doing that. So, um, I don't profess to know the answer, but I've learned a little bit about being less emotional about realizing when it is time to hand the baton to somebody else. That's that's a very good point. And uh, nowadays I like to do the analogy between the fundraising and assuring that you already know the investors uh, that will be your partners in your next funding rounds and the same the same about the seats on your leadership team or the members of your leadership team that will join in 12 months time so that you start speaking with them sharing what is the vision understanding if they might be a fit and understanding if they have the skill set uh, that you were uh, describing very well uh, to join the, the company so which means that the job of the leadership team is uh, an ongoing job as fundraising is for a uh, I growth uh, company. Do you agree with 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 this uh, perspective? I think that uh, I mean some broadly yes, but I think the nuance, the difficulty is that when you start the company, there is no one else, so you're doing everything yourself. And as the company grows, essentially you're doing less and less. And as you do, well, sorry, you're doing. Uh, you're handing over areas of responsibility of and you're moving from being hands-on on product to managing people. And some people love that. For me, I must say my joy comes from turning an idea into reality. I love the um, building of things. The people side of things is really less me. Um, and so now, I've, you know, uh, as the business grows and I've been at the BBC with a team of 250 people, the question is, uh, do you find people to take over that bit? Do you learn to love that and be better at it yourself? Uh, it's, it has to be some mixture of the two. But uh, actually, one of my uh, investors in a previous startup told me, and I think it was a really good point, he says, you know, actually, I know less about the business than almost everyone in my team. But what I know is how to run a brilliant team, how to find great people and how to nurture them. So in fact, I don't need to know anything about the business. I only need to know about my team. I must say, you know, if you look at Moses going up the mountain, he's at the top of the mountain. I'm still at the bottom of the mountain. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure I quite want to be at that point because I do like the hands-on piece, but it'll be interesting for me as a journey as well to work out what I would like to do going forward. That's awesome. You, you already introduced it, um, the, the, the habit number two, which is everyone is aligned with the number one thing that needs to be accomplished at this quarter to move the company forward. And I really think that that's what you were just discussing 
should we open a new geo should we open a new vertical should we should we launch a new product um, so there are a lot of strategic decisions uh, that might be very tempting to make in order to expand the business and i think it's super super counterintuitive especially when you are really on growth mode uh, that in principle to grow you need to open up the number of verticals, the number of geos, and the number of products in order to be able to scale. And what happens usually is that we slow down uh, the growth um, of the company. And of course, with the pressure of increasing the headcount, which complicates everything, the decision-making process, the communication flows, et cetera, et cetera. So how difficult it was for you, and maybe starting with Sid Legals, if you want to give another example of your past experiences, to really stay focused uh, in, in a specific vertical, in this case, in a specific industry, which is legal. Um, so, and you were just describing also the, the geo. So what are the key strategic decisions that, that you needed to take until now at Seed Legals? And what are the ones that you consider that, that you are considering that you need to make next? I wish I knew the answer on <laughs> prioritization. I think you probably approach it really from two ends. Um, on the one end are the big picture strategic things, the ones that will either be major revenue opportunities or have major risks associated with it. On the other end are the things that the team are doing on a day by day, hour by hour basis, based on customer feedback, product improvements. And so for me, I like to find somehow blending the two. I love to have a customer-focused business. My goal is that if someone hits us up on our web chat and says, I don't understand this, or how do I do that, or we add a product enhancement, I'd like it to be less than 24 hours from having a request to shipping that, if it's a small thing to do. And that's how the product, so if our team, for example, tell me, hey, customers have an issue doing this particular thing, they keep asking us how to do it, I'd see what's the minimum number of hours, hours, not weeks or days, to make a small improvement in the product to make the friction from that go away. So part of the business is all about rapid, small improvements, but rapid and small doesn't get you out of the local valley that you're in. It, it makes perfection in a small space, which is perhaps good, but really the difficult one is now when you want to leave your valley and go to another valley. And that's often uh, particularly difficult because the founders are usually domain experts in a particular space. So for example, with uh, you know Laura and me, we think we know startups pretty well. What about later stage businesses? What about accounting or property? We don't know these areas. Clearly there's a tech piece that might work there, but we're not the subject matter experts. So that carries a lot more risk. So I think one more data point, which is, uh, I uh, heard a wonderful saying, which is one of the key attributes of a good uh, founder is procrastination. And uh, that means just because you want to do something, actually sometimes putting it off is a good idea. 
And I think that worked brilliantly for us with ICOs. So about 18 months ago, we started getting a lot of incomings from companies uh, wanting to use seed legals to do their ICOs. And I was temporarily quite excited. Should I divert resources and do ICOs? I mean, it could be huge. Anyone involved with ICOs at massive valuations, we were going to look to raise if we had the word ICO and blockchain in somewhere in our right. title, maybe it would add a zero <laughs> valuation. And um, so, you know, the, the problem I had was that I didn't know really anything about ICOs. Um, I didn't know the regulatory areas and I couldn't find anyone who was an expert. So I kind of put it as a background thread and, you know, in the event, zero people asking us about ICOs these days. We had a, then a bubble of people asking about STOs, uh, security token offerings, and that's disappeared. So I think that um, what I love as a mental, you know, intellectual activity is you have a, uh, a new thing you'd like to do. Um, you think about maybe number one, what would happen if I saw my competitor doing that tomorrow? Would I kick myself that I'd missed a wonderful opportunity? Or would I actually think that when I looked at their website and saw all the work that they had done and just didn't care, that actually that was the best way. So, you know, it said, don't build it until you've prototyped it. Actually, you can go further, which is um, almost don't, uh, don't bother building it till a competitor has built it and <laughs> check it out and see and if nobody cares. And so what I quite delight is when I've thought about doing something, probably procrastinated or it just didn't reach the top of the pile, seen someone else build it and then um, look at it and go, meh, I'm just not going to use it. I'm so pleased I never spend my time and money building that. And I saw that back in my iPlayer days when other video companies introduced all sorts of cool, whizzy things that I was at once wanting to do and were on my roadmap. And then I looked at their portal and actually I, I never bothered playing with it other than, you know, trying it as a, you know, what's my competitor doing? And then was quite pleased. I never put the money and time into, into building it. So the short answer to your question is, I totally don't know the answer. Um, and I think my team frequently tell me that I try to do too many things, uh, or we try to do too many things. But number one, I try to at least stay laser focused on what's the big mission. Two, I tell my team, if we stray from the mission, please remind me of it. Do not do something just because I told you. Three, think if my competitor did it, would I care? And if I didn't care, then maybe it shouldn't be at the top of my priority list. I hope that's helpful. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Anthony. It's, it's a really great point. And if we looked, for instance, for the case of Zoom uh, IPO this year, uh, it, is, uh, it is clear that sometimes you do, in order to really build a great company and a great vision, you don't need to um, innovate in the sense that you need to create something completely new. You just need to be the one who better uh, executes it and who, who better serves the the customer needs. And I love your laser focus on uh, be super close to what the customer is really asking and serving the customer. So, uh, by the way, if I can hop in, I think you know yeah. Zoom versus Skype is uh, a very good point. And so, um, 
Skype is an excellent example of a company that's lost sight in my mind, of course, of course I know nothing about how they work internally, so I'm just surmising, has lost connection between what people really want and what their team are obsessed that they want the product to become. So if you look at Zoom, it's got stuff that you actually want. You can send a link. You don't need to have people added in contacts. You can record the full screen stuff and the sharing works in a way. What has Skype done? They've added idiotic stuff like emoji and notifications. You can like things. They're trying to make Skype into a Snapchat. And so somewhere at Skype headquarters, there's some millennial product designers who are not at all thinking about what their users really want. They think about what they want their product to be. It needs to be cool and zippy. And they've added all the shit that nobody wants. And all that's happening is ma making people move to other products instead of figuring out. But, but this is the classic problem, which is, you know, they're in a particular valley and people are using it in that way. And now they think there's a particular size audience or there's a particular size threat. Should they optimize for that audience or should they go and almost in a sense tell the audience we don't care about you we're putting emoji and liking of comments and stuff that uh, you know you add someone on skype and it sends them a little wave so there i am connecting with the vc <laughs> fund adding the thing the person and it's like a little emoji waving it's it's completely wrong for the audience um, and i i like to use that as a great example, I think of a product team that has lost its mission and is led by ego or design or something rather than by analyzing what uh, users are really wanting. And of course, I'm just saying that from the outside. I mean, maybe they know for complicated reasons they need to morph it into something else. But, but I, I think about that as an example of what not to do. Absolutely. So, and coming to the habit number three, uh, if, if you have the right team in place for each stage of growth, if you are really focused on what you need to do next in order to have your BIAC or big area of issues go uh, closer, it's, it's time now to assure that this flow of communication from the customer to the team, from the team to the investors, from the, the providers uh, to the team, etc., etc., uh, runs as quickly as possible and as effectively as possible. So that's why we are so obsessed about creating those meeting rhythms that, again, needs to be different from stage to, to stage of the company. So what are the meeting rhythms that you have in place uh, at this stage at Seed Legals? You, uh, um, well, maybe I can approach the question a little bit differently, which is about a customer-driven uh, team, I think. So um, I think for me, the, the key learning was when I was at the BBC with BBC iPlayer. And it was in the days before books on Agile and MVPs and things like that. And, you know, I kind of made it up as I went along. And um, but when I arrived to take over iPlayer, I identified all these things that for me, the product just wasn't doing it. There were like a hundred things. And I went to talk to the team and they justified each one. Anthony, you're on Windows. Or it's only you or nobody likes this program or only you would look for this detail or it's just your computer was a frequent one. And I told them, you know, you might be right. Each one might only affect 1% of people, but there are a hundred of them. I mean, statistically, most people, it's not going to work. Um, and I realized very quickly that trying to persuade a team from your own view 
was going to be tough much better to have them sit with users and they really weren't engaging with end users at all and this is a key problem when i talk to many founders they sit in their we work or their office or whatever and you dream about a vision and you don't interact with real users so i'm super obsessed with that you know, everyone in the business interacts with real users. So at Seed Legals, we use Intercom, which is fantastic, you know, for web chat. Our median response time is one minute, 48 seconds when people message us. And really everyone in the company has visibility of chats. You can tag our CTO if somebody says, you know, I, I don't understand how this works. We'll just, our, our customer support team will tag myself, tag the CTO. And then my goal is to respond with the product improvement as soon as possible. We have a, a Slack channel where we post customer incomings. So the goal is not only to have a GitHub or somewhere where you file tickets, but no, it's to bring people in the office essentially in front of the audience. And that in the past meant you have to go out, you know, out of the building, that's tough. But when you've got web chat and people are interacting with you, on a second, you know, there's 40 chats in progress at any time, then people have immediate visibility. Um, and, and I love that the team is driven by uh, customer peace. So, and that means that the executive team is really now focused on the big vision and customers are often driving the minutiae and the team are now have a mindset of doing not just what they're told to do or what they feel like doing, but analyzing what people are telling them and evolving the product to do that. Love it. I think it's one of the meeting rhythms that really should be in place and that we never talked about it in the show uh, after those 80 episodes, which are kind of a customer, also customer advisory groups or having the ritual or the rhythm of uh, speaking with customers in a, in a regularly uh, rhythm, let's say. Uh, very, very good point, Anthony. And uh, so we are coming to, to the end of the show, uh, but before we, we go for the last question of the show, uh, let's cover something that is critical for any company which is scaling, and that Seed Legal is also providing here and end, which is cash. And so what, what were the some of the mistakes or or what kind or what advice do you give to founders uh, in order to manage better their their cash flow it's a great question um i think one of the problems that the startup industry essentially has is that it's obsessed with the amount that companies raise and the, the valuations. So when you read TechCrunch or other publications, all they write about is companies <laughs> raising money. They won't publish your story unless it's a fundraise. But actually raising money is the failure to grow your company without having to raise money in a sense, which is ironic for me to say, given that we're in the business of <laughs> powering companies raising funding. But... Um, if your metric, if a definition of success is raising more, that's basically saying I'd like to give away more percent of the company that I own. And also once you raise a lot of money, you start ramping up the amount you spend. I've done that in the past and I'm probably doing it even uh, less consciously now. So, you know, to me, um, startups are 
I like to think of it as ripples in a pond. So the founders have an idea. Nobody invests just on PowerPoint. So you have to put some effort into building a prototype. And our data over hundreds of rounds shows that founders put 26,000, a median of 26,000 pounds of their own money into the business. So that's like the, power, the pebble drops in the pond, ripple one is the founders put some money in. Then the companies may raise in the UK 150,000 pounds, giving SEIS tax breaks to angel investors. That's your angel round. Then you may raise 500,000 pounds as a seed round, and then you might raise one and a half million or so as a series A. So the formula seems to me, based on hundreds of rounds we see on seed legals, you want to raise enough money to raise your valuation by three to five X, so you can raise three to five X amount, giving away about 15% equity each time, such that by the third ripple, the third fundraise, the founders still own more than 50% equity. And after the third fundraise, either you don't need to raise money because the business is now um, scalable on its own, or you know, you're happy to exit the business and everyone makes a great return. So if you think about that formula, what is your funding round goal is to let you increase your valuation by hitting certain milestones, be it on traction, revenue or whatever, to get a three to five X multiple on valuation, which enables you to raise three to five X as much to get you to the next step until eventually you get to whatever destination that you wanted. And so if you're giving away much more than 15% equity, um, now, of course, uh, you know, it would be nice to raise huge amounts much sooner, but uh, if you can try to get to that formula, I think that's the formula for success. I think one more thing which is interesting, which is, and I think this is generally problematic also for the industry, is success for founders and for VCs is often quite different. So VCs, there's a power law. One in 10 of their investments might return a 50X multiple. So for a VC, they might make 10 investments and they might know that three will die completely, four of them will you know, get a 1X return and one of them will get a 50X return. The problem is for a founder, you don't want to get home and tell your wife, honey, you know, I'm playing a numbers game. There's a 90% chance the, the business is going to fail. And there's a 1% chance that it'll be a unicorn. He or she is going to want to say, actually, what I would like is with a higher degree of certainty, we can pay our mortgage in a year's <laughs> time and we'll have a high chance of a moderate outcome. You know, you're paying yourself no or minimal salary. So we'd like to get something modestly good with a good degree of certainty. And so here are the two, the dichotomy between the one uh, VC playing a numbers game, they're playing poker with many, many rounds versus you as a founder are putting three or five years of your life into something and you want to maximize the chances of at least a modest success. I mean, some people are crazy and want to change the world in a crazy, in a good way. Um, and others are very much more modest, but somewhere in between, I think is the right blend between ambition and reality. 
So the, that is the problem that often VCs, because they're playing the numbers game, want to dial up to 11, you know, the risk reward uh, ratio, right. whereas founders want a much lower risk reward ratio. And VCs um, may start by putting a lot of money in, start leading founders to scale prematurely, to take many more risks than they otherwise would have. And that's often egged on by industry publications that show, oh, company X raised 20 million or raised 300 million. What are they going to do with 300 million? I have totally no idea. So, so yes, I hope that answers that question. Absolutely. That's, that's a very good point. And also to um, uh, remind ourselves about the incentives of um, both sides of the table. Uh, so we are coming to one of my favorite questions of, uh, of the show. It's my, my favorite question of the show. If, if you'd have the opportunity to meet yourself uh, at the beginning of Seed Legals, uh, what advice would you give yourself? I think I'm, uh, I'd like to say I'm old and wise enough that I don't <laughs> think that much has changed between the beginning of Seed Legals and now. I think if I went a few startups back, there would be a lot more learnings. Um, Sounds good. Uh, Let's do it. <laughs> so um, I think uh, probably uh, try not to raise much more than you really need. I think a few startups ago, I raised lots of money. I was very successful in raising lots of money. But the problem is that you then very quickly spend lots of money before you've got product market fit. And that's a classic problem um, of founders who are, I mean, usually it's very difficult to raise money, but if you're in the exceptional position of being able to raise lots of money, um, you tend to want to do it. I mean, you know, people often say if, if uh, you can raise it. If you're able to raise it, do it. But I think often focusing on being lean is a much better discipline and it helps you focus on get to cash flow, break even or profitability sooner. So that's thing number one. I think thing number two, I, I used to be uh, uh, probably a terrible micromanager. And for me personally, it's been a journey over many years to try and you know, devolve power to my team and not wonder in. And I think this is a, a, a particular problem when you've got a founder who's a sort of technical person because you used to do all of this technically yourself. And initially you can solve technical problems at least as efficiently as anyone in your team. And then you need to learn to not solve the problem yourself, but coach the team to be able to do that themselves. So I think the uh, team leadership skills, which are in no way... Um, I think a strong point for me, but something that I'm uh, consciously working on. Thing number three is do one thing and do it really well. And so um, I think, and, I, and I've seen personally from previous startups that um, the problem is customers are often looking for just one thing. I want an app that does X, but investors are often looking for a vision of all sorts of things. So for your investors, your slide deck says how you're going to be a B2C proposition, and then you're going to be a B2B with APIs, and then you're going to have data, and then you're going to put it on a blockchain or whatever it might be. So you having all these things that, you know, in theory, more is better. And actually now when I see slide decks and I see people doing four things or three things or even just a B2C and a B2B, 
I know that this is a negative and I, so, I try to be super focused to not fall into that trap. So for example, you know, no end of people say, call us and say, I'd love to have a white label version of seed legals. We'd like to use this in our law firm. Or can we have APIs or can we have data? And once upon a time, I used to agonize over decisions like this because they're all incremental. And now it's really super easy for me. I go, we're a B2C platform. I mean, my, my, my customers are companies themselves, but essentially it's, it's as if they a B2C platform. I don't do white label. I, uh, you know, don't license. I mean, maybe one day that will change, but I just do that. And so, you know, maybe sort of like uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, just just say no to the next drink. It's just say no to the next API, white label, whatever it is, um, you know, strategic partner incoming. So I think that's, that's thing number three. And maybe the last one, thing number four, is... Uh, nothing really particular from my background, but I think from what I see with many companies is um, I think they overvalue the advice that they expect to get from their investors. So I've seen and, and been involved in a few tweets and other Slack channel threads and so on, which is I'm looking for an investor and an advisor, or, you know, I'm going to pick a fund based on, them with their vision and uh, things. And for me, it's pretty simple. An investor is somebody who likes you and the company's vision. You like them because you need to work together in the future. You can agree on a valuation and you can agree on mutually agreeable deal terms. Um, and it's fantastic that they help you on, you know, HR and hiring and send customers your way and so on. But I like to think, maybe because my wife's a lawyer, I like to think of things strictly as transactional and contractual. So you give me money, you entrust me to build the business. My goal is to give you a return on investment and give you quarterly updates. And of course, I would love to refer deal flow to you and I would love that you send people my way as customers, but it's strictly contractual. So my advice uh, to founders is keep the roles of investor and advisor separately. Why? Because advisors might give you rubbish advice. You might want to fire them later. You can't fire your investor by putting the two roles as one. You can lead to an awkward situation where they're giving you advice that in fact um, perhaps matches their goals of playing the big numbers game and doesn't match yours, but you can't untangle it. Or maybe they're obsessed with you being a SaaS platform, but actually your business is just fine as a recurring one-off platform or whatever it might be. So um, I think also people overvalue the advice that they're going to get. I'm going to give my advisor, I need an advisor on the board because it's just going to make me much more investable. I'm going to give them 5% equity. It's like, whoa, you can hire five people and give them percent equity and they're going to be with you in three years time building your platform 24 seven, as opposed to one person is going to breeze in one day a week or one day a month and tell you stuff to do and then disappear again. So, um, yeah, my advice is the, uh, avoid, uh, outsourcing, avoid, um, you know, uh, advisors and instead surround yourself with a team who buy into the mission, who are there 24-7 with you on the mission, um, because the mission's going to evolve 
from what you originally had in mind. And the best people to help evolve it are the ones in living and breathing the dream rather than the ones who pitch in for quarterly board meetings. Amazing way of closing the show. It was such a pleasure, Anthony. Thank you so much for, for joining us today again. Thank you so much. I, it was a great set of questions and I hugely enjoyed it. I hope it's helpful uh, to the audience as well. So, um, and by the way, if you want to uh, reach out, it's anthony at seedlegals.com. You're welcome to drop me any thoughts, whether you liked so my, my thoughts or you want to disagree with pleasure. That's, that's awesome. And uh, as you were saying, thank you also to our community for joining uh, our episodes. Uh, feel free also to do the same with me as Anthony was saying and uh, let us know if you'd like to have um, a specific guest or a specific topic that we didn't cover yet about this scaling up journey from 1 million to 100 million uh, US dollars. We will keep bringing the best tech leaders in the world so you can scale uh, as quicker as possible in, in the most healthiest uh, way. See you soon and keep scaling.